Hi, everybody. I'm Sabri Beneshaw from Marketplace. And I'm Tim Fernholtz from Quartz. And this is Actuality. 1,000 ball pythons. We've had a shipment of piranhas that have that have been imported. You have 1,000 pancake tortoises or Greek tortoises, and you have to find a place for them. That's Naima Aziz, wildlife inspector with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, talking about all the creatures and creature parts she seizes. And that's what today's episode is about. Trafficking yeah. in animals and animal goods. It might be the world's fastest growing business. One example, rhino poaching for horns in South Africa increased 7,700 percent between 2007 and 2013. But uh, put the antidepressants away because uh, it's not all sad. Uh, we'll talk to a guy who's actually weirdly really optimistic about animal smuggling. We'll talk a little bit about what trade deals could do. But first, Tim here got to go to a closed off location in Long Island that I like to call the Smuggler's Mortuary Zoo of Death. We visited the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's uh, basically seized animal lab and while it was grim and a little sad, it was also kind of an interesting and fun place. But it's sort of the gateway for how a lot of uh, illegal animals come into the U.S. Hi, my name is Naima Aziz. I'm the Supervisory Wildlife Inspector with the Port of New York and Valley Stream. Uh, my name's Paul Chappelle. I'm the, a special agent with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and I'm the resident agent in charge of New York. We're in the, um, we call it the lab at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife. All, everything in this room has been seized by the Fish and Wildlife Service in the Port of New York. What is with um, the, the skull here and then the, the is it pottery skull? The, the skull was actually concealed inside this. Oh, so this is it, interesting. Correct. It was not declared as wildlife. It came in, I believe it was handicrafts, it, it said. Uh, right at, at our mail facility, cracked it open. We we found a skull inside. And what is this skull? It's crazy. I mean, it looks like a monkey skull, but it has like carvings in the top of it. Do you, do you know where it came from, or how much it would be worth on the market? I mean, it's a it's a juvenile orangutan skull, so there really is no um, legal, market. legal market value for it. There's a uh, some some live animals here. There's a snake and some. Actually, I just noticed some terrifying looking spiders. How often do you guys encounter live animals, and how how do you find them? These particular live animals. One's a um, a ball python, and the other one is a. I think it's a, it's a tarantula. They were actually um, being exported from the United States. The lady had them smuggled in her checked luggage. We've done operations with the TSA before, uh, and if they come across any sort of live animal, they do call the Fish and Wildlife Service. Live animals are not easy to place or to house. I mean, it's one thing if you have one ball python, but if you have a shipment of 1,000 ball pythons, yeah, I mean, yeah, 1,000 ball pythons, we've had a shipment of piranhas that have, that have been imported. You have 1,000 pancake tortoises or Greek tortoises, and you have to find a place for them. And there's a lot of consortiums and conservatories out there that are willing to help, but you realize taking care of a tortoise is not something that's done in 10 years. It's done in 90 years or 100 years. So that does come into play with people willing to accept animals. Yeah, you might go to Petco and buy, buy a bunch of supplies and say, well, we'll set up something temporary in the, the shop here. And there, again, there's no guide or, or book that, that that you can go to and how to temporarily, you know, what do you feed certain species and things like that. So, yeah, absolutely. So, so it's a it's a big challenge. What else in here should we look at? These are sea turtle eggs. Uh, we find these a lot coming through passenger baggage. Uh, they're a delicacy, like in Latin and Central America. Uh, they bring them in a lot during Lent, um, and they'll tuck them away in their bags. Sea turtles have it hard enough without people eating their eggs. 
are there any other uh, items that are seasonal in that way that you say, oh, well, it's it's March, it's time for turtle eggs? Is there another month where you're like, oh, it's time for this? Um, yeah, like, I mean, coming up is like Chinese New Year, uh, and uh, mitten crabs are a Chinese delicacy, so we start to see a big flood of importation of the mitten crabs coming up. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's seasonal. I mean, Mercedes-Benz Fashion Week is seasonal. Every uh, September, we have a bunch of seizures of high-end leather products. So, like, the big categories that we're talking about most of the time are ivory products coming back, um, various communities importing things for traditional food or medicine, uh, fashion use is something that you guys see a lot. 20% of our um, of our workload here is probably sports hunted trophies. Uh, we do sports hunted trophies on a daily basis. I mean, whether they're African trophies, whether they're um, they sport hunted elk or deer in Europe. Uh, on the port side here, a lot of what you're doing is not just sort of enforcing U.S. law, but also like international law and worrying about animals in other countries, too. Uh, so I guess how do you communicate with those folks or those relationships you've built up over time with the other agencies? That's usually the um, one of the main responsibilities of headquarters in Washington. Uh, they're the liaisons to other countries. Uh, through the Lacey Act, the Fish and Wildlife Service enforces other foreign laws. So if the the great white shark is illegal to be taken in the wars of the Philippines, and I have one that shows up on my doorstep in the mail facility coming from the Philippines. I talk to the Washington office. They, they request the foreign law from the Philippines, and I can make my investigation. So um, all of our correspondence, and whether we have a fraudulent permit or a permit we think is fraudulent, or if we have an influx and maybe pancake tortoises coming from a particular country, we go through Washington, they ping that country and say, hey, did you guys have an export of 1,000 pancakes? tortoises and they're like well we don't have anything on the books we send out requests on a daily basis yeah yeah thanks so much Okay, so we're going to zoom way, way, way out uh, from that lab in Long Island because as totally cool as that place was, it's really just the tiniest little piece of what is a global trade, a global trade that Crawford Allen monitors. He's senior director of the Wildlife Trade Monitoring Network at the World Wildlife Fund. Crawford, how big is the global trade in animals and animal parts? The global illegal wildlife trade is exponentially growing and the volumes are are actually beyond anything we've ever seen to date in decades of research and analysis on, on looking at the trade. The estimated value globally of the legal wildlife trade is, is around $20 billion. Are you talking live animals or animal pieces or both? I'm talking both. I'm talking about the trade in live animals and their animal parts. So, for example, there's a major problem with illegal trade in live reptiles for, for avid collectors, and we're seeing millions of illegal reptiles being traded every year. So you say that this is a trend that's growing right now. Can you point to why now more than any other time we're seeing more illegal animal and animal part trafficking? There's a few reasons for this massive spike. One of those is actually linked to the economic rise of Asia um, and a new fashion trend for all things that are rare and exotic and incredibly expensive. That trend has actually pushed prices up for some wildlife products and live animals. The massive prices involved in the legal trade now means that organized criminal elements that were formerly focusing on 
drug trafficking or human trafficking have now made wildlife trafficking one of their major commodities for them to make a lot of money very fast and at very low risk. So we do know that, for example, the price of rhino horn is now far higher than the price of gold or platinum or any drugs out there on the market. We don't really actually even want to tell you what the value of rhino horn is worth for the fear that it actually is stimulating more poaching and trafficking as more and more of the criminal elements out there are aware of just how much money there is to be made. Ivory, for example, it used to fetch, you know, a few... uh, tens of dollars per kilo. Now it's in the realm of thousands of dollars per kilo in the Asian markets. I cannot help but feel that the resolution to this is less x-rays at the border and more actually changing opinions that influence demand in Asia. Is there any concerted effort to do that, to say, no, you can be rich and not have to have a rhino's gallbladder in your pantry? Well, this this whole crisis, as we're calling it, this wildlife trafficking crisis, seems a really bleak, depressing issue. But actually, we've got more hope now than we've ever had because there has been a major response. For example, people in China buying ivory believe that elephant ivory simply falls off the elephant like you would lose a tooth or like a deer would lose its antlers. They don't realize that that thousands and 30,000 elephants are being slaughtered every year in Africa simply so that somebody in China can buy a very nice pair of chopsticks for $2,000. That, that recognition and that understanding is really now starting to take hold. There's a lot of movement within social media in China and other countries in Asia, and that we really are starting to see some success build. All right. Crawford Allen is the World Wildlife Fund's Senior Director of Traffic. Thank you, Crawford. Thanks, Crawford. Thank you. Okay, so Crawford Allen with the World Wildlife Fund is super hopeful because he sees change starting to happen in Asia, but he also sees something called the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's the biggest trade deal in decades. A lot of people love it. A lot of people hate it. Uh, Part of it deals with animal trafficking, and Tracy Samuelson knows about this. She's uh, one of Marketplace's New York Bureau reporters and focuses on the TPP. Uh, Hi, Tracy. Hey, Sabri. Hey, Tim. So the Trans-Pacific Partnership obviously covers a huge amount of ground. It's a big, complicated document. But what uh, is going on in the animal trafficking section, Tracy? Right. Okay. So we're talking about Article 2017. I brought it with me. It is a couple pages out of these thousands of pages that make up the TPP. And it is supposed to help crack down on the trafficking of animals and animal parts. You've talked to some anti-trafficking groups about the TPP's provisions on this. What is their reaction? So some of them think it's a a good first step, that it will help reinforce previous uh, trade agreements, one called CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna, and that it will help get these countries better coordinating with each other. Um, Others have some concerns that the language is too squishy, that it's not enforceable, and that it won't be enforced. Like, what does it say? Does does it say, like... No. Okay. So what it does is it tries to reinforce that that CITES uh, treaty, previous agreement. It encourages the better exchange of information and experiences between the countries. It's supposed to get them to crack down on the sale of animals, whether they were illegally harvested from that country or another country. And in general, I think the great hope among people who support this agreement is that it'll get countries to coordinate with each other, that there will be more 
transparency and flow of resources between countries. Looking at all the countries involved, I can't imagine that it's just that nobody cares. I have a feeling it's got to be partly that they have a lot of other problems to worry about with limited resources. Does the TPP do anything about that? So the agreement leaves it up to each country to determine how to allocate their enforcement and investigative resources. And if you look at these 12 countries, like you said, I mean, you've got you've got the U.S. and Japan on the one hand, you've got Vietnam and Malaysia on the other. There is a very wide um, array of countries in this agreement. So the hope is that the TPP will help knowledge and resources flow towards countries that need some help building up their capacity. Are there any other, you know, trade laws or things the U.S. should be doing to uh, to work on this that you've heard from these folks? I think that they would want much more forceful language. Uh, so instead of something like the country shall endeavor to do X, Y, Z, that that there would be language that would specifically say the countries will do X, Y, and Z. Mm. And I think they wish the U.S. had a better track record of enforcing other agreements that have already taken effect. A um, very common complaint on the trade front and yes. not just on the environment. Right. Uh, one small detail about the TPP is that it is not ratified yet at all. Um, what's the latest on that, Tracy? First of all, it's 12 countries. It has to be ratified by each one of those countries. And in the U.S., it faces a pretty uncertain path, whether or not it will come up for a vote in Congress in 2016, whether that happens before elections, whether it happens after elections, whether it will get support from Democrats. There are a lot of question marks around it. Tracy Samuelson is uh, one of Marketplace's New York reporters. Thanks again. You're most welcome. You know where I am left with all this is I think about the war on drugs in the U.S. Uh, I mean, half of the battle, sure, yeah, is uh, the submarines and the radar to find the tunnels with all the weed and the coke coming through. But the real problem is that Americans want all the weed and coke. So if that doesn't change, you still have a drug problem. And I feel like it's the same with animal smuggling. Well, I have a little more hope than that because drugs actually work to make you high. But eating crushed rhino tusk does not actually do anything for you. The intoxicating high of uh, status. Okay. But I think what is interesting to me about all of this is that it's such um, a global problem with the demand for all of these animals often coming from different countries than where they live. And it's a global solution. And I was just struck when we visited the U.S. Fish and Wildlife folks how much of what they do is really about enforcing other countries' laws – through U.S. diplomatic agreements than just protecting the U.S. from invasive species we don't like, although they do a lot of that too. Yeah, it's amazing how much other places lean on us for that. If you want to see some pictures of the animal items and animals seized by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service at JFK, we will put some up at uh, the post about this episode at Quartz and Marketplace. And now for something completely different, as we do. At Quartz, we report on surprising discoveries. They're the news items that make you raise your eyebrows. And today is about animals, and it's disgusting. <laughs> uh, when Favorite. you have a sick beached whale, unfortunately, it turns out the most humane way to euthanize it is with massive explosions. Uh, apparently, according, according to who? The Western Australia's Department of Parks and Wildlife, which I guess has to deal with this on a fairly regular basis, uh, has found that its whales are too big to shoot them and also too big for an injection of some kind of uh, euthanizing drug to take effect. So There's no bedazzle lamb for whales? 
I'm sorry, what? <laughs> There's, you know, the midazolam is that drug that they use for lethal injections for no. humans. <laughs> I can't say I would have a first name basis with it. This is the only province in Australia using an implosion technique to end the suffering of sick or stranded beach whales. Uh, they've suffered 146 humpback whales stranded off their coast since 1989, so oh. they have some experience in dealing with it. Uh, one of the few times where a massive amount of dynamite might be more uh, humane than an injection. You know, there's that famous video of they tried to explode a beached whale in some West Coast state like 40 years ago, and the whale parts end up raining down on the anchor man covering it and all the people there and crushing several cars. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival as huge chunks of whale blubber fall everywhere. A parked car over a quarter of a mile from the blast site was the target of one large chunk. The passenger compartment literally smashed. So presumably they won't do it that way. Uh, no, apparently they have developed a technique that uses a small amount of explosive, I should say, placed right above the whale's head mm. to end it pretty quickly without raining meat down on uh, the surrounding area. Right. Okay, that makes sense. Okay, good. Well, we have uh, some home news for our actuality fans. Like the great bears of North America, we are going to go into hibernation for the winter. We've been overeating and gorging to gain fat on our disgusting bodies. Now we'll go into a small den to prepare a whole new season of episodes for you with bigger and better interviews, more stories from Sabri, <laughs> bad jokes from me. Look for Actuality to return in March with a new and exciting season of episodes. In the meantime, if you want to know more about animal smuggling or some great recipes for tiger claw soup, you can find those at marketplace.org and qz.com, probably. Uh, and while you're at Quartz, check out our daily brief. It is the perfect way to start the day. You know, we would love to hear from you, especially uh, while we uh, are on break between seasons. Uh, we would love to know what you think of this podcast, what you think of past episodes, what you liked, what you didn't, what topics you think we should take on in the future. You can email us at mpqz at marketplace.org, or you can leave us a message on the phone at 802-430-6779. We're on Twitter. I'm at Sabri Tree, and Tim is at Tim Fernholtz, H-O-L-Z. And Actuality is at Actuality Pod. Uh, we have many thanks for Jake Gorski, who made our lovely theme song, and for producer Claire Tennisketter, who spent an hour in the car with me driving to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, Animal Impound lot. And thanks to our overlords at Marketplace and Quartz. You've been listening to Actuality, the Marketplace Quartz podcast. We'll be back in March with more stories from around the world. See you then.